You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, podcast listeners. Randy Bolander here on the Third Cup of Coffee. Glad to have you with me today, recording on Election Day. Not sure what day you're going to be listening to this. Not sure if we're going to have clarity on what the election means, but I am recording on Election Day because we are told that if this goes haywire, uh, the whole country falls apart. Uh, electricity will stop. The internet will no longer work. Uh, water will begin to flow uphill. Uh, it's just going to be absolute pandemonium. Uh, at least that's what we're told. Uh, literally, 7.30 this morning, 7.30 this morning, polls are barely open in a few places. And NBC is already talking about uh, what it would look like for the election to go to the Supreme Court. I'm thinking, can you just stand down? Can you just like lean back and wait until an actual crisis develops? And it might, and who knows? Uh, this may not be the most timely podcast because it could be that you're listening in three days and total civil war is broken out. I don't think that's going to happen. I think there's going to be some unrest. I do think that there's going to be some chaos, but can we maybe wait till it happens before we completely freak out? I have enough going on right now that I can't I can't borrow trouble from tomorrow. Got a plenty plenty going on today. Speaking of plenty of trouble, I'm in lockdown. I am stuck. I'm in my home. I'm in my basement. The reason being, Friday, I had a leisurely lunch with a friend at a restaurant, something I have not done in whew, a long time. Long time since I've been out to a restaurant. Went out to a restaurant with a friend. The next morning they messaged me and said, "You need to know that I now have flu-like symptoms." I said, "Oh, and I immediately retreated from my family because, as you can imagine, were there to be a breakout of anything in our home, it's a little bit like racing through a small village. You just you just can't do that. You just can't all get sick. So I locked down immediately, and uh, my friend went and got tested, found out over the weekend he was COVID positive, and now I'm still in hiding. I took a test yesterday. I think I did quite well, actually, um, hoping to have flunked it. And I hope to know tomorrow that I am fine and free to go. I feel fine. I have no symptoms um, other than just uh, a general orneriness that periodically uh, shows itself whether I'm ill or not. Uh, diving into a message from Sunday morning that I, I really think is important. Uh, of course, I think it's important or I, I wouldn't podcast it. But even beyond the normal importance, I dive into a third week of teaching on 1 John chapter 4. And we talk a little bit about where love comes from and how it flows through us. We also talk about the idea that God is love, but that does not necessarily mean love is God. Most of our culture has become convinced that love is God, and if they chase love, they'll find God. Now, it's a roadmap. God is love. It is not an equation that works both ways. And that may sound like a narrow distinction to you, but I think as you listen, you'll understand the point that I'm making. God is love does not mean love is God. And sometimes those who follow love find themselves in a very, very different place. I hope this podcast finds you well. I hope it finds peace in the streets at your home. I hope it finds us with a clear presidential leader very quickly. And I hope it finds me having failed my COVID test and tested negative. Is that failing? I think failing is negative, but that's positive. I just don't want COVID. I just don't want it. Anyway, neither do you. Here we go from Sunday morning from 1 John chapter 4. 
we are working our way through 1 John chapter 4. Um, and this passage has kind of grabbed my heart because it is both timely and you know it fits right now and it's timeless. Very little in life is both timely and timeless. And if you don't believe that, look at photos of yourself from 20 years ago. You might have been timely, but maybe you weren't timeless. Uh, things that seem to be very current often don't last very long. By the way, I heard it said that if you are a trendy person and the trend comes around again and you participated in it the first time, you're not allowed to participate in it the second time. It embarrasses your children. So if something was cool when you were younger and it's cool again, let it go by. Don't, don't dive in. That's just not a good, not a good look for you, Dad. It's not good. Uh, so looking at this timeless passage, we're going to talk about the source of things. Where things come from is very important. Curious minds never take things at face value. They always wonder what the source of things is. And this presidential election has got me thinking uh, of presidents past, and there has never been a more curious president uh, than Theodore Roosevelt, and certainly never a more curious uh, ex-president. He attacked life. In the 1880s, he was regularly traveling to the badlands of North Dakota to hunt in places that were hard to find even today. Uh, as vice president, he was hiking in the Northeast when he discovered that the president had died and he had to return from this hike to become the president. Even as he was the president, he would sneak out of the White House and he would go down to the Potomac for a winter swim. He was just, there's never been a president like him before or since. Definitely will never be a former president like him. In 1913, he was no longer president, was out of a job. He had served as the youngest U.S. president in history. And after being in the White House for eight years, rather than retire to play golf or write his memoirs or even hunt in North Dakota, Roosevelt took his son to explore a river in the Amazon that had been unmapped and at that point unnamed. And it was a wild trip. This was not a cruise down the river. Uh, they were stalked the entire way by natives who could have wiped them out and, in fact, did wipe out subsequent uh, people who would, would travel down the river. Roosevelt's crew struggled with hunger and disease and injury. He was injured so badly that they actually had to do surgery on his leg on the riverbed in the middle of all these malaria-infested mosquitoes. And of the 19 men who went on the expedition, only 16 came home. One of them died by drowning, one of them was murdered, and the one that murdered the guy, they decided to leave it back there in the jungle. And so, I mean, can you imagine if uh, an, a living president did something like this today? You could just, it's, it's hard to even imagine. President Clinton goes to, you know, the Amazon. It, it just doesn't happen to President Obama. The Secret Service would have something to say. Why do all this? Why did he do all this? To lay his eyes on something from the beginning to the end. Curious people want to see how things start. So we're not going to the Amazon this morning. We're going back to 1 John chapter 4. We're going to explore uh, what I call the headwaters of love. We think we know what it looks like. We can recognize it when it comes our way. We can try and pass it on. But where does love come from? How does it make its journey from its source to our lives? And where does it go from there? And we're going to touch on the idea of do unbelievers or those who are not followers of Jesus have the capability to love. I think it's going to be interesting. First John chapter four, seven through 12. And uh, when I finish this passage, uh, Daniel Grenz, I'm going to ask you uh, if you would pray over this and, and we'll dive in. Beloved, let us love one another 
for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfect in us. Daniel, would you pray? Yeah. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that your word gives expression to who you are, that it invites us in to know you, to encounter you, to, to find ourselves more fully in you. And Father, we thank you, God, that you are love and that you've loved us with an everlasting love. We thank you that the words of Jesus ring true, that he loved us to the end, to the utmost. God, that you love us today afresh. And so we ask, Lord, this morning that as we dig into your word, we ask that the breath of your spirit would stir our hearts afresh with passion, with desire and longing for you, that we'd be filled with wonder at who you are, a God that is uncreated, that is preeminent, omnipotent and above everything. And yet that you draw near to give expression to the love you have for us and that that would provoke us into all you've called us into father we bless you i thank you father for this family ask that you'd knit our hearts together with one another and with your heart today in jesus name amen thanks daniel so i want to give you today three big ideas about the flow of love in our lives where it comes from how it moves through us where it goes and uh starting out with the first one is we love best out of overflow not our own effort. And when I say we love best, what I'm talking about there is in the most Christ-like way. I, I don't mean our personal best. Um, it may not look like it, but you're, you've joined me here in my basement. And just off to my left is my Peloton bike. And I'm constantly riding that, trying to find a personal best, trying to do the best that I've done. And uh, what I've discovered is my personal best is often nowhere near somebody else's personal best. I've very, very quickly learned not to compare myself to others on that because uh, I may think I'm doing great and I'm actually doing terrible. But when he says, when I say we love best out of overflow, not effort, what I mean is in the most Christ-like way. It's not coming home at the end of the day and, and you know, how'd you do? Well, I did better than I did yesterday, but, but not fantastic. No, I mean to really reflect the love of Christ. Have you ever heard somebody say, and I say somebody else saying, knowing fully well, we've all said this, some people are hard to love. You ever said that? Yeah, they're just, they're hard to love. I've, I've joked about it before. I've said there are people that we call EGR or extra grace required. Uh, I've, I've known people that have actually had a, kept a file of people they referred to as EGR. And I remind myself that if you have a file labeled EGR, there is probably someone who has a file labeled EGR and you're in their file because you're a little bit hard to love to somebody else. Some people are hard to love, but let me just kind of clarify that sentence a little bit. People are hard to love, especially if we're trying to muster it up on our own out of duty. Duty is an honorable thing, but love out of duty is actually not what the Bible teaches us. It says, uh, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 
the Greek manuscript begins this, the sentence in a really striking way. It says, those who are loved, let us love. In other words, because we are loved, let us reflect what we've received from the Lord. We're not commanded to love or to earn our, our affection from the Lord. We love one another because we're loved by God. And having been received, having received that love, we live in light of it. And it changes intrinsically how we relate to people. Let's go back to that, that phrase again. People are hard to love because we've all said it and we'll all still say it. But let's think a little bit about what we're saying. What we're really saying is, I wish people were more lovable like me. And we think, no, 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 I would, I would never say it out loud, but we do. And it's probably never easier to illustrate than it is this week on the edge of a presidential election, because we are able to drive through our subdivisions or down our streets and see people's political preferences displayed in their yard on a sign. And based on the differences between us and them politically, we make assumptions about the people who live in that house. Now, hold on. If I offend you in the next couple of minutes, just stick with me and I'll offend somebody else and you'll feel better about it. But if you're driving down the road and you see one sign, you might think, knowing nothing about the person, that guy probably went to a liberal university, probably drives a Volvo, has solar panels and a compost pile in his backyard. Like you make all these assumptions based on the sign that you see in his yard. Then you see another sign and you think, that guy probably quit college to take over his family's business. He drives an F-250 and has a shooting range in his backyard. We make these vast assumptions based on one little sign in a yard. And inwardly, we relate differently to one or the other. What is the standard? Is it their value before the Lord? No, it's their similarity to us. We go, oh, I, I understand that person's thinking, or how could they think that way? Our inability to love other people who are different than us is directly proportional to our idea that people like us have earned God's love and the other people should be able to get their act together and be lovable like we are. Now, we rarely see our own hangups or our own unlovable moments, but we do see them in other people. Even when we struggle to love them, it comes across as entirely insincere or not genuine. Love that is fabricated always feels insincere. In the South, they used to have this phrase uh, that we would always laugh about, and the phrase was, bless their heart. And we knew what that meant. We, it meant we think that person is a nut or worse, but bless their heart. We wish them the best. Love that is insincere always comes off that way. Mature believers love out of the overflow of their heart, not effort. And if you are struggling to love somebody in your life, don't look directly at them. You're looking at them for some reason to love them, and you're not going to find it any more than they can find the reason to love in you. You want to love a person that's hard to love? Explore your own sense of entitlement. What makes me think I earned God's love? What if God looked at me by the standard I'm looking at others? What if the Lord looked at the proverbial signs in my yard? I don't have signs in my yard. I'm not a yard sign guy because I don't want the neighbor to drive by and make all the assumptions that I make about people who put signs in their yard. So I'm not that guy. But there are signs that we put out there. And what if the Lord looked at our signs and said, that's all there is to them? I don't know if I can love that person. 
when we focus on the grace of God in our life, it becomes far easier to give that away to others. So that first big idea is that we love best out of the overflow of the love in our own heart, being aware that God's love and grace in our life pays better dividends than just in sheer effort of, of grinning and bearing it and trying to be kind. Second big idea, and this might sound like we're splitting hairs here, but, but hear me out. God is love, but love is not God. Okay. God is love, but love is not God. First John 4, 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. This verse draws a direct line from God to love. If you follow God, you'll find love. However, this is a treasure map, not an equation. You find God first, and then you find love. It doesn't work the other way. It's not as if love is God. Our culture insists it's the same thing, but it's not. God is love. Love is not God. God is love, but he's more than love. Just like those of you who are a father or a mother or a business person, you're more than that. God is love, but he's way more than love. John 4, 24 says he is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. John 1, 5, or 1 John 1, 5 says that he's light, and in him is no darkness at all. Hebrews 12, 29 says that our God is a consuming fire. Well, which is he? Is he, is he love? Is he a fire? Is he a light? He's all of those things. And to say that God is love, but love is not God, might sound like a narrow distinction, but let me show you why narrow distinctions matter a great deal. 31 years ago, this spring, uh, we are driving Kelsey's Toyota Celica back and forth from Springfield, Missouri to Cincinnati, Ohio to plan a wedding. And we've made this trip about six times at this point. We are driving. It's a Friday afternoon, got off work, jumped in the car, headed out. And we're about four or five hours out of Springfield driving through St. Louis. And I'm driving, drinking coffee, Kelsey's napping. And I'm a happy man because I am about to marry out of my species. And so life is good. And as I'm driving, as Kelsey's dozing, uh, about an hour and a half later, I go past a sign that tells me I'm 20 miles from Springfield, Illinois. And I, I remember thinking this at the time, wow, I just left Springfield, Missouri. I'm almost at Springfield, Illinois. I've never been to Springfield, Illinois. And then I remind myself that I've made this drive six times and I've never been to Springfield, Illinois. Th something has gone horribly wrong. Why? Because if you stay on the right road, you don't go through Springfield, Illinois. But if you do what I did, which is just east of St. Louis, where I-55 and I-70 diverge, and you're in the wrong lane and you're not paying any attention, an hour and a half later, you realize you're way, way off the path. Because narrow degrees of distinction, I mean, the lanes barely parted, but those narrow degrees of distinction lead to very different unintended destinations. And culture has missed the ramp on the idea that God is love by taking the one that says love is God and they're lost and they can't find God chasing love. If love is God, then any emotional connection that you have to someone or somebody else could arguably say, you could say it's been touched by God. That's how people get roped into emotional and even physical connections to other people that fall outside the boundaries of scripture. And they sense that God is blessing it because after all, if it's love, it must have God's blessing on it. No, God is love, but love is not God. You follow God, you will find love. Follow what you think is love. You may find yourself in Springfield, Illinois going, how did I ever get here? 
There are people whose strong ideas and genuine emotions about love have led them places to believe that they have God's blessing, and God has not touched that at all. Now, a slightly tangential thought here, uh, but I think you'll see where I'm coming from. Can someone who doesn't know Jesus truly love? I, I've heard that asked. Can, can a non-believer really love? I believe they can. I believe everybody is made in the image of God. And even in our fallen state, we have obviously your unbelieving friends love their children. Uh, there is a capacity, even if it's flawed. I believe the unredeemed heart, there is the capacity to receive and give love. Luke eleven thirteen 13 talks about a father, even who is evil, but knows how to give good gifts to his children. Like that, that's a natural response. But knowing some sense of love outside of knowing God leads us to believe that love is God himself. And we think that because we've connected to love, we have a connection to something bigger in ourselves. And the world has confused that and convinced themselves if they follow their heart, they'll find transcendence. If you look at popular music, if you look at cultural leaders, everybody wants to promote the idea of love and the idea that if you pursue love, you will connect to something higher. No, not necessarily. It's a sign of being human. But our humanity is not a cure. It's actually part of the problem. It leads people to feel like because they have a love for something, God must be in it. And this mistake even leads churches to describe ungodly relationships as being blessed by God because there's some element of love there. No, no, no. God is love. Love is not God. Follow God. You'll find love in your heart. Follow love and you're going to find yourself off the tracks because the heart is deceitful. So we love best out of overflow, not duty. God is love. Love is not God. Third thing we pull out of this passage here is the idea that the love of God speaks really loudly. Look at 1 John again, verse 4. I'm sorry, uh, chapter 4, 9 and 10. This is the love of God that was made manifest among us, that God sent his son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We live in a technical world where almost everything can be explained. Remember the day before smartphones when you actually had to deal with ending some discussions as going, huh, we don't know. Everything can be explained now. My kids' initial reaction to any question is, let's go ask Google. And that's how they find out things. What is that light in the sky? There's an explanation for that. Why do you see water on the road in a hot day? There's an explanation for that. However, there are things that can only be explained, and I mean confusing, hard things, that can only be explained by the love of God. William Barclay was a Scottish minister and a writer. Uh, although I think probably his greatest contribution to the world was as a thinker. His logic is richer than his theology. I, sometimes his theology gets a little bit off. He had a tendency to uh, believe um, entirely contrary things at the same time. He's a great writer. And he wrote about the idea that because God is love, it explains five really mysterious things in life. And all of these things point directly to the love of God. And I want to tell you about these five things. Now, my ideas about the five are, are my own, but the five are his. And I, there's a fine line between 
uh, preaching and plagiarism. And I don't want to quote that. I don't want you reading later and go, this sounds suspiciously like what Randy told. That's because I got these five things from William Barclay. If you ever meet him at a coffee shop, uh, thank him. Uh, it'd be unlikely because he's, he's quite dead. But I'm just being honest. I didn't come up with these five things. The first of the five things that he said point to love is the idea of creation. The church and science have argued for centuries about how creation took place. On one side, you have those that say, well, just look at the scripture. And on the other side, you have those that say, well, just look at the science. Now, side note, when you hear people telling you to believe the science, understand they are telling you to believe the science they are presenting. There's always a lot more science than they're presenting. But those are the two camps when we talk about how creation took place. Very rarely has anybody asked, why does it take place? Like, however God did it, why bother? The disobedience and the lack of response in men is a continual grief to the Lord. Was the great void with his Holy Spirit hovering over the waters all that much worse than a planet full of people who are cursing him day in and day out? Do you ever wonder if the Holy Spirit looks over at Jesus and the Father and says, Remember when it was just us? Like, when are we going to be empty nesters again? Like, how long is this thing going to go on? Because these people are continually a problem. Why would he create a world which seems to bring him nothing but trouble? The answer to that is that creation was essential to love. If God is love, he will not willingly choose loneliness. Love must have an object to love. And he created the world to house those objects. We were created because of love. He did this to express that attribute of love. The fact that some of creation rejects his love does not change his intention. If you've struggled with a child who has gone through a, a season of rebellion as an adult and said very, very hard, hateful things, you know that the things they say to you don't change. It may cause you pain, but it doesn't change the love in your heart. He created us for love. We are here to love and be loved, and the act of creation is explained by love. The second thing that we can only explain by love is the idea of free will. Now, there's a lot of debate around the idea of if God knows everything, do we really have a free will? You ever wondered that? You ever wake up in the morning and lay there in bed and think, God knows everything I'm going to do today, so do I really have a choice? It's the question of free will versus determinism. Is everything you are about to do determined because God already knows it? Does foreknowledge equal foreordination or, or him causing it? I'll give you a longer answer in a minute. Short answer is no. Okay, if, if you're very good with the short answer, that's it. But the longer answer is this. Let me illustrate. If you are a parent, you're not omniscient, but... You're mostly omniscient, if that's a word. I mean, you, you don't know everything, but you know a lot. And you know more than your kids think you know. And you may not know if there's life on Mars, but you know if you look out in the yard and there are two kids playing in the yard and one of them has a bungee cord with a hammer tied to the end and they're swinging it over their head, this is going to end in a trip to urgent care. You know that as a parent. You can see that happening. You're not God, you're not Nostradamus, you're not even a fortune cookie writer, but you know this is bad and someone is going to get hurt. So did you cause that accident? When, when it comes and, and the hammer comes disconnected and it flies and whacks the other kid in the head, and when you're getting stitches, can the kid look at you and say, thanks, dad? 
you, you caused this. No, no, no. Free will caused that accident. You knowing it did not cause it to happen. Foreknowledge is not foreordination. God knows who will love him, but we choose to love him. Free will is essential to the existence of love. Unless love is a free response, it's not love, it's slavery. Had God only been motivated by law and order, he would have created a world in which men move like robots and having no more choice than a machine. But if God created men and women like that, there would have been no, no opportunity for a personal relationship with him. I have a relationship with people who can accept or reject me. I don't have a relationship with the inanimate objects in my garage. Because God is love, you have a free will to accept him or reject him. So because of love, we have creation. Because of love, we have free will. Because of love, there is something we call providence. Now, I don't think we talk about providence enough. Um, it was referred to a lot in the, at the uh, beginning of our country. They use this language a lot. Providence is the protective care and ongoing direction of God over our lives. I, to me, it feels like uh, the hand of God on my back as I walk and making decisions. And I go, I, I know he's there. I know I made that decision, but I know he's there. In 1755, George Washington wrote to his brother, John. And he wrote, by all the powerful dispensations of providence, I have been protected beyond all human, human probability and expectation. For I had four bullets through my coat and two horses shot under me, yet escaped unhurt. He's writing to his brother. He's like, I sense the guiding of God on my life because I should be dead by now. Why did the providence of God protect George Washington? Because the Lord knew that a small, fledgling, volatile, combustible nation needed someone with a very even temperament and there was nobody else available probably other than george washington that had that temperament so the providence of god guided his life and kept him safe providence i'm telling you it's a real thing i think about this a lot how many times in your life can you look back and go that was a turning point for me and i didn't even know it in the moment yeah i wasn't in the I, checkout i, I didn't even know that there was um that going on and yet the lord guided it and made happen what happened we've been in kansas city 17 years and uh we're here i think about this often not just because of a decision we made 17 years ago but really because of a decision we made 24 years ago in a conversation that i was in that kelsey wasn't even a part of we were in tennessee i had been on staff at a church there for about seven years and we were pondering the idea of planting a church in that community. And uh, it was a hard thing uh, for the senior pastor to think about. It was just a new idea. And it was a new idea to me, too. We hadn't thought about it very, very long, but I opened the conversation with him. And one day he suggested that we go for a drive. It had a bit of a mafia feel. When he said, would you like to go for a drive? I understood he wasn't asking me. He was telling me to get in the car. So I got in the car. And we, he suggested that maybe we go drive and look at locations where Kelsey and I could plant a church. And he starts to drive. And I noticed he drove a lot further away than I would have driven where we had thought about planting a church. We were quite a ways away. And he pulls over into a parking lot and he points to a pole alongside the road. And he said, I think if you plant a church on that side of the pole, it would be fine 
But if you plant a church on that side of the pole, it wouldn't be good. And so I'm just in, in kind of testing the boundaries because I, I wanted specifics here. I said, what if we, what about that building right there? It's just to the left of the pole. If that building came open, would you tell me no? And he goes, no, no, it's got to be on the other side of the pole. It's got to be that direction. And I knew in that moment that his heart was just not able to bless this. He just didn't have it in his heart. And he may agree to it, but only because he had people who would be disappointed if he didn't agree to it, but we didn't have his blessing. And in that moment, I knew we weren't going to stay there in East Tennessee. So we moved to Cincinnati. And while we were there, we met people and had experiences that led us to Kansas City. Had we not left Tennessee, we may have never moved to to Kansas City. Would have never probably met Lou Engel. Probably would have never adopted. If we did, probably would have adopted different children. My life is what it is because of the choices we've made, but also the providence of God over my life. And your life is a reflection of those very same things. Every one of you, if you think about it, you look back and there you have a story like that. The providence of God is the hand of a loving God rather than simply law and order. Had he simply been law and order, you make your decisions and he'll, he'll deal with you accordingly. If that's all there was, none of us would have lasted this long. Now, we like simplicity. We like automation. We like to buy things that we can set and never, ever think about again. But God, in his love, in his creating act, is followed by constant care of providence. He provides his love through creation, through free will, and through providence. The fourth thing he provides because he loves us is the idea of redemption. Now, there's a lot being said right now about the idea of law and order. Basing a society on justice and making sure that people pay for their wrongs is good for the whole. And God supports law and order. Of course he does. And he expects us to keep order and maintain justice in our society. There are passages in scripture that we have thought he is supposed to fulfill that if you read them in context, he's actually talking about us. Amos 5, 23 and 24, he says, take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. What he's saying there is your worship services mean nothing to me because of the injustice in your society. And if, if you're not willing to, adjust, uh, to address the injustice in your society, don't bother singing me the songs because I expect you to be a part of that. It's not a promise for him to dispense justice, but a command for us to work for it in our lifetimes. He asks us to be moral and just and fair, and it is because he can do so because he's the greater example of that. However, he is complex, and if he was only about law and justice, he would have left men to the consequences of their sin. But the very fact that God is love meant he chose to seek and to save that which is lost. The very fact that he is love means he comes after those who have done wrong. He went to the cross motivated by love, not justice. Yes, justice demanded that a price be paid for our sin, but love has motivated him to pay that price. His love for you opened the door for your life to be redeemed. Because God is love, your sins can be paid for. If you start with the idea that love is God, you may end up piling on those sins. But if you realize that God is love, you understand what motivated him to offer redemption. 
because of love, we have free, we have free will, we have creation, providence, redemption. But even more than that, because of love, it is an explanation of the life beyond. Because God loves us, we get more than the 20, 30, 50, 70, 90, or 100 years that we have here on the earth. Some things by nature are short-term investments. I'm thinking about um, beta fish, okay? Beta fish, I'm sorry, if it's just somebody probably on who's had a beta fish, it's like a member of your family, but largely beta fish are dispensable. You buy them knowing from the moment that you leave the store with the fish in the bag that there is a cosmic countdown clock. And it may have three digits and it may have one digit, but for the fish, walking out of the store in the bag to the car from Petco is like the Baton Death March. It's not going to make it. It's a beta fish. And as a purchaser, particularly as a parent, you're fine with that. Okay, because you don't love this fish. If you love this fish, you would feel differently. If you love fish, you buy a different fish. Love for something forces the consideration of their well-being for the long term. My mentor, Steve Shogren, has softened considerably in his approach to people over the years. In the heyday of the megachurch that he pastored, he would hire and fire at a moment's notice. Um, when I was on staff there, I was one of 120 on staff, and I had no street cred with the rest of the staff until Steve got mad enough to threaten to fire me one day. And then suddenly I was one of the bunch, because that's just how he lived. Now, as he's grown older, he's mellowed considerably. And I remember going for a walk with him in his home in uh, Florida one time. And he was actually um, very tender about that idea of how he had been as a younger man. And he told me, you know, when it came to staff, I used to think that everyone was replaceable. And now I realize that nobody is really replaceable. And that every time I sent somebody away, there was a hole there that was impossible to fill. How, why did he change? He grew in love. And in love, he cared for people in a deeper way that involved longer-term thinking. If God were simply a creator, as if creating were simple, men might live their brief little time span and just die forever. Kind of the beta fish approach. I created that one. I can create another one. And the life which men live might be like a flower that comes to its end of its natural cycle. But the fact that God is love makes it certain that the chances and changes of life do not have the last word. And his love readjusts the balances of how long you exist. If life was hard, he wants you to know it in an easier form in the afterlife. Maybe your life was short. You're going, well, I'm 70 or 80 or I'm even 90, but it still felt short. He wants a longer time for you to know him. God is love. And because God is love, he gives us a life beyond the life we've lived here. Back to John, 1 John 4, 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. John says that in the depths of love, it was displayed through one amazing act. The son of God, the perfect son of a perfect father sent into the world. Stop for a minute. That is mind-blowing. 
a perfect father-son relationship. Imagine a father-son relationship with no baggage at all, no teenage rebellion, no father struggling with his own father issues, just pure love between a father and a son. That is the sort of bond that was put on the line when God sent his son on behalf of our own eternity. That word propitiation, it's a big word. It's the idea that a sacrifice had to be made to turn away the legitimate wrath of God. We deserved, and we continue to deserve, God's wrath, but Jesus' sacrifice turned away our judgment. That isn't just about the love of God. That also displays, displays the love of Jesus. Isaac on the altar before Moses went there not knowing what is coming. Jesus knew exactly what was about to happen. And as the sacrificial lamb, he knew that no lamb was going to appear in the thicket. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And the Bible says that we might live through him. The idea of living and breathing, I mean, you get that idea. Remember the first time you ever went snorkeling? That eight-inch snorkel was your best friend, wasn't it? Because all life flowed through that thing. And you know that if you got too deep or if you lost that snorkel, no more oxygen. It was over. Life flowed through that snorkel. Life flows through Jesus. Motivated and sustained by love. And because we receive it, we can give it away. He is literally a conduit of life to us. Now, as hard as this may seem to believe if you're watching the news, all of what we just talked about actually matters more than an election. God is love. In a Trump presidency, God is love. In a Biden presidency, God is love. In both scenarios, we are told to love those around us. And in both scenarios, we are able to love both around us because love and life comes through knowing God and not through knowing circumstances. Thanks for listening to the third cup of coffee. If you'd like to connect, you can find us at thebridgekc.church.